Jodcast, twice a month but still unmissable, with Melanie Jandra, Liz Guzman, Leo Huckvale, Libby Jones, Kat Maguire, Tim O'Brien, Mark Perver and Christina Smith. The Jodcast, June 2012 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Kat Maguire, and joining me today is Libby Jones and Liz Guzman. Hi, guys. Hey. Hello. So, Libby, you've been away for a while. What have you been up to? Well, I've been uh, travelling to Japan and Taiwan, and during my travels, I was lucky enough to see some cool astronomical phenomena, including an annular eclipse of the sun. So, yeah, these are quite rare in the UK. You hardly ever get a chance to see even partial eclipses. In fact, they're rare in general, as many of you will know. But, yeah, I was very, very lucky in my travels that... um, this conference I was doing, the, there was no solar eclipse on the very first day. So it was a it was a brilliant way to start off a conference. And I was walking along the Japanese streets and uh, I was crossing the road in one of the busiest crossings and suddenly everyone stopped and started looking up and they had um, the filters with them and uh, everyone was looking at the sun and I was, I was amazed to see so many people just stop in the middle of rush hour in Tokyo, the heart of the business district, and observing the sun. And in this annual eclipse where the moon is passing in front of the sun, but it's not the same angular size of the sun, so it doesn't block out all the light, so it doesn't get that dark. Um, but instead you see the, the outer halo of the sun in a sort of ring of fire effect. Uh, and you can see this not only through the filters, we could also see it reflects on the tall buildings, which is a very good way to look, observe the sun. And it was such an amazing sight, just seeing... So some people kindly lent me their filters um, to have a look as well and, and see this effect. It didn't last very long, and everyone got on with the business straight away and got after work. But it was a, a brilliant start to the morning, just seeing this uh, solar eclipse on the 20th of May. It was brilliant. So you picked a good time to go to Japan, though? Yeah, it was a perfect timing. Um may not have had so much, because I was due to go last year just before the tsunami, but... Uh, the, the, this was uh, the rearranged trip to coincide, I think, completely by accident with the solar eclipse. Brilliant. Awesome. So I was very, very lucky, and it's uh, something that I've never seen before, and I'm not sure when I get a chance to see it again. So I was, I was very, very lucky and very, very happy. Brilliant. It was definitely a cool way to start a conference. In the show this time, we talked to Dr. Catherine Johnston about massive star formation, Professor Ed Copeland about alternative theories of gravity, and Dr. Dave Jones about binary stars and astronomy at the VLT. And your astronomical questions are answered in Ask an Astronomer. But first, before all of that, Mark talks to Mike Anderson about managing the site at Jodrell Bank Observatory in this month's Jodbite. So for this month's Jodbite, I'm joined by Mike Anderson, who's the Site Manager and Safety Officer here at Jodrell Bank Observatory. Mike, is there much to, to manage and, and much safety to, uh, to officiate out here? Well, people actually misunderstand how much work's involved with running a site. Not just this site, also the outstations that go along with the uh, email network. So my job involves managing the maintenance and the contractors that come onto site. And that can range from the front gate barriers, the landscaping, to the annual painting of the buildings, the fabric of each building, bearing in mind that some of the buildings are listed structures. For example, the tunnel that's attached to the Lovell is a part of a listed Right, it's the uh, tunnel that goes under from the observatory to the... That's right. The now, that tunnel's 130 metres long, and we have done maintenance on that to stop water ingress so that it doesn't collapse. Right. Other items that we get involved with is the safety of the workshops, uh, obviously the equipment, the 
number of engineers, RF technicians, telescope engineers and electricians. We have to look after their workshops, their welfare as well as the security team that come on at night and also the training of those engineers as well on an annual basis. There's a lot of things that go on that a sort of unusual kind of safety hazards, like anything to do with the Lovell telescope is a bit a bit unusual, isn't it? Yeah, there's lots of unusual safety hazards, not just with the Lovell, it's the, the working at height aspect of uh, a lot of the work that we do, and the amount of constant training that the guys have to have an annual refresher on abseiling uh, with a casualty and cutting people off ropes and things, oh. which is a, a great course to do that we do uh, every year. Uh, it's always good to find somebody you're not so friendly with to cut them off and uh, <laughs> watch their face as they drop a metre below you. So it's, it's good fun, some of it. But there's also the equipment side of things. We've got to keep on top of the maintenance of the, the cherry pickers and the, the telehandler lifts and things that we have as well, in addition to the lifts on the level. Yeah, so there's actually a cherry picker up there right now. There is. Um, we've had a fracture at the bottom of the telescope below the, uh, the old bowl surface um, where a piece of structure actually snapped off. And it was hanging there in the balance, as it were. So last week I ordered, um, on Thursday afternoon, a 50-metre cherry picker, which will allow easy access for our guys to go straight up there and affect the repair of that. And it's twofold, really. The first part of that is to um, take out the old rivets and bolts on a bracket, 90-degree bracket section and replace that with a correct type of bracket and also conduct some other um, investigations to whether there are any other fractures, of which we found a crack in one of the sections right. which has subsequently been welded up using a manual metal art welder obviously prior to that work being carried out we've got to ensure we've got all the correct risk assessments and methods in place and ensure that everybody's happy with the work and the procedure and process that we're going to use and are those rivets were they original the yeah they're the original and we thought it was quite interesting that uh, four out of the eight fixings were rivets and four were bolts and it actually turns out that um, that beam was bolted in as opposed to being riveted as all or the majority of the others are, um, to allow you to take it out to get to the beams further up right. to get lifting equipment in when it was made. Oh, so it's okay. quite interesting. We thought it might have been taken out previously, yeah. but it's not. It's actually a design feature. For anyone that doesn't know, that's about that's about 55 to 60 years ago now that they were, they were built. That's correct, yeah. years ago it was completed. Yeah. So the, the working height we were at uh, to affect this particular repair, the base of the platform was around the 41 metre mark. The cherry picker we've actually arrived with is a 70 metre that actually runs up to 229 feet, which is a substantial piece of machinery. <laughs> that is, that is. Uh, so when then people go off-site as well, we obviously control a number of other telescopes here from Dodgeville Bank that are, that are elsewhere in the country. Do you yeah. have to oversee the safety of those sites as well? Then? Yeah, we've got um, a lot of obviously fire extinguishing things at outstations. We do an annual safety inspection at these outstations also. And what's quite interesting is that from these inspections you when you write up the risk assessments for various um, general maintenance work, maintenance is split into weekly jobs, three-monthly, six-monthly, and 12-monthly jobs. And when we've recently reviewed all of these, it's been a, become apparent that we perhaps need to move the locations of some state safety stops, emergency stops for various items, and maybe change some of the short ladders to steps to make it actually easier to work and adjust the way uh, that we lift receivers into place at the vertex cabin, for example. Do people go up and take the receivers, or are they all manually uh, lifted into place by machinery? Yeah, they're lifted into place by uh, what we call the vertex winch, and then you're not trying to climb a ladder with a substantial piece of equipment. Quite a lot of these receivers are around the 30 kilogram mark, so that's slightly too heavy really for your average person, certainly whilst you're trying to climb a short vertical ladder, whilst it's only five feet tall, it's it's not the easiest uh, object to, to move around with. <laughs> no. 
Um, so on the site here, one of the things that's coming up this summer is the um, the concerts that are going to happen. We had one last year, and this year we've got two. How do you cope with all those people? Because I imagine there's never been 10,000 people on this spot, ever. I don't think there's ever been 10,000. We're in the process of putting together a plan of how to manage that. Certainly last year, when the Flaming Lips were here, you can see it on YouTube if anybody's actually interested. It was a fantastic night uh, where we had 5,000 people and had to move parts of... Uh, Discovery Centre equipment to fit the staging. You've got to ensure, obviously, you've got easy access on the road side of things with the local councils, make sure you've got adequate access and egress from the site, and also crowd control, which is a major part of it. I mean, there's a substantial amount of fencing went up, but we work very closely with a company called Ear to the Ground that manage the actual running of the event with the catering and things like that. So we liaised with them directly all through the evening, and we had staff actually on the telescope to make sure there was nobody... Uh, interfering with any of the actual astronomical equipment or any of the cabling or anything like that. So it turns into a big event. Yeah, I mean, it's huge for this. I mean, it, it takes your job description to another level, really. Did did the um, telescope actually operate during the concerts? Or? Yeah, it operated during the concerts. We we had a radio communication from the stage to the main control room and he actually turned the telescope round and we projected pictures of Bernard Lovell video footage of him talking. Um, and it was a spectacular feet of lighting and engineering, even just the, the scaffolding tower they used to, to project that from to get the right size of picture for the 76-metre diameter. Yeah, oh. that's, a, that's a really hefty projection, isn't yeah. it, 76 metres? I mean, it's quite interesting. To light the structure alone is quite a feat. You need, you know, uh, 11 kilowatts of lighting, for example, and we had that when we had the stargazing live early on in the year with Dara O'Brien and Brian Cox. That was another massive uh, production. You know, you, people don't realise that just for that short hour programme each night, you've got around 80 staff that descend yeah. upon the site with catering and separate toilets, and you've got to sort out the drainage, and, you know, it's a, it's a big scheme. So did you meet any of, any of the presenters? Yeah, we've met all of them. It's, uh, it's a bit surreal, really, because you get used <laughs> to sitting next to them, having your dinner, and, <laughs> and they just become like friends over a period of time. And because it was the second year as well, Everybody was a little bit more relaxed because we, we knew each other and they knew what to expect. Fantastic. All right, well, thank you very much for the interview. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for that, Mark. Next up, Melanie talks to Catherine Johnston about the effect of massive star formation on its surrounding environment. Hi, this is Melanie, and I'm talking today with Dr. Catherine Johnston from the uh, Max Planck Institute for Astronomy in Heidelberg. Hi. Hello. Are you enjoying the uh, National Astronomy Meeting today? Yeah, it's great weather and the talks are good. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty nice. I'm having quite a lot of fun. <laughs> um, so you are working on massive stars and how the formation of massive stars can affect their environment, right? Yeah. yeah. Can you tell me more about this? Um, so in, in the past uh, decade or so, there's been a lot of arguments about how massive stars form and their stars... Um, more than, say, 10 times the mass of our own sun. And um, uh, basically, uh, a lot of the problems about forming a massive star is um, the fact that they, they're so bright, um, and bright in a lot of ways. So they can uh, their radiation pressure was once thought to be a problem, so it would um, stop all the... Uh, oh, radiation pressure. What What's that? I see it. You're looking in your face. Well, um, so... Stars uh, give off um, radiation, um, and that can actually produce uh, a force upon uh, the material around them. Um, and so, basically, the star is trying to form, and 
masses uh, coming onto the star. But if there is this radiation pressure, it actually could, in theory, stop the material getting to the star, and therefore um, the star having enough mass to become, form as a massive star. So it's kind of a, like a counteract to gravity. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So you were saying that those massive stars have something special with their radiation pressure? Right. Um, in, so the more massive a star is, the more um, luminous it is. So the more radiation it gives off and radiation pressure. And in the past, uh, that we thought, oh, well, then how are we going to fa- make this massive star um, if it doesn't al- allow the mass to accrete onto it? But that um, now is, is, is not um, really thought to be much of an issue. Um, and that's because um, just like low-mass stars, massive stars are thought to form with disks around them, accretion uh, disks. And so what can happen is um, uh, we call it, well, some people call it the lighthouse effect. So the, um, the light from uh, or the radiation from the massive star can be channeled out perpendicular to this disk um, so it's not really so much of an issue when back in the the distant past we used to think that uh, all the mass accreted spherically onto the star. You know, so it's yeah. more one direction instead of just uniform. Exactly. Okay. And so you were uh, saying in your talk that the uh, this massive stars have certain effect on the molecules and and things that are around the star and in the environment around. Can you right. tell me, like, how? Okay, so what I, I was more interested in is how um, actually the ionization of the matter around uh, the massive star um, is uh, changing uh, how a massive star might form. What do you mean by ionization? Okay, so massive stars um, give off a lot of ionizing radiation. And this is uh, radiation at, uh, at ultraviolet wavelengths. Um, and this is really um, highly energetic radiation. And because it has so much energy, it can actually break apart um, the, the, the molecules and the atoms um, in the materials surrounding the massive star. Um, and that can change uh, things properties like the temperature of the material around it and it can make it um, you know something like 10,000 degrees Kelvin and that's basically the same in centigrade so that's a lot. (laughs) And does it actually change the the kind of molecules you will find in the surrounding? Does it uh, change the kind of atoms you see? Um, uh, So it it can do yes. so if, if you have a very hot um, medium uh, surrounding your massive star, um, then it really uh, can uh, disrupt the molecules in exactly the way I, I suggest. So you, you could maybe not observe them because the material is just too hot. And so what is the most interesting thing you think uh, about the massive stars? What, what is your, your passion about massive stars? Uh, is there a subject in particular that you think is really interesting well i i think that the the thing that um uh, in this field astronomers have been trying to get to the bottom of is exactly where the mass um for massive stars um to form comes from um because a lot of um astronomers uh, suggest that it could be that uh, massive stars form from a big clump of material that uh, for, which gives it all the mass that it requires. And others suggest that maybe that um, a massive star forms by creating mass from very large distances away from it in a cluster. 
and the actual seed of the massive star is quite small to begin with and accretes by um, uh, kind of bringing in all the mass from the very edges of the cluster and right down to the centre where um, you could imagine it's at the bottom of a potential well so it's like at the bottom of a uh, gravitational bucket if you can think of it that way. <laughs> okay and is there how do you determine how it's formed what are the the, the hints, uh, the observational hints that you're looking for? Okay, so um, it was very hard to actually observe massive stars um, until recently because um, you really have to use very um, long wavelengths because what happens is there's so much material in the way, uh, dust in our own galaxy in the, the disk that, um, that obscures um, our view of the, these massive stars forming when you're looking at it with just the optical, so what we see uh, ourselves with our eyes. So what has been done in the last couple of decades is we observe them in the say the far infrared or the submillimeter and at those wavelengths um, you're seeing the thermal emission from those massive stars as they form and all the material around them um, emitting as well and uh, you can really try and understand the physics of those uh, objects that way. Do you have a, a preference on scenarios that uh, is it accreting from just a big bubble of matter or from matter from far away? What do you think? Well, I think uh, the issue is at the moment is that for a long time um, we've been trying to look for these isolated massive um, stars, uh, well, forming massive stars, these clumps that could possibly form a massive star. But a lot of the time when we look at them at higher resolution so, um, with uh, larger telescopes, we find that actually um, they break up into smaller fragments or there are many smaller stars there. So at the moment I think actually there have been um, a lot of observations that have actually seen um, accretion streams you know of gas um, coming from very far away in a cluster, a proto-cluster you could call it, uh, right down to the center where a massive star is forming. So although it's it's uh, hotly debated, in my, in my view I think it's the second uh, of those two scenarios sound, sounds good to me. <laughs> that is really interesting. Well, thank you very much, Catherine. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Okay, and uh, I hope you enjoyed the meeting. Okay, thanks. Bye. Right. Thanks for that, Melanie. Now we have Mark talking to Professor Ed Copeland about testing alternative theories of gravity. Professor Ed Copeland from the University of Nottingham has been giving a talk today on alternative theories of gravity which is something that I think even among a lot of astronomers causes quite a bit of head-scratching. So, um, Ed, could you describe what these alternative theories of gravity are like and why people pursue them? Sure, Mark. Uh, maybe first just try and motivate why we might need alternative theories of gravity. And, uh, the, uh, the universe is doing something rather weird at the moment, if you look at it on very large scales. Uh, weird in that it's, it's expanding. That's not so weird. We expect that, but it's actually expanding ever faster. That is a bit weird, because we all know gravity sucks. Right? <laughs> gravity slows things down for you, and so we, you happily accept that the universe is expanding because of the Big Bang, which you know, we don't understand very well, but we accept that, that it's providing some initial explosion, some initial energy density, 
And so we expect the universe to expand, but to slow down eventually. But here it's actually going faster and faster, and we don't really know why. And so people have put forward various possibilities. And there is a very straightforward possibility, which is called the cosmological constant, and Einstein introduced that. Uh, but in terms of understanding the value that it must have today, it's very difficult it, from the world of particle physics, which would be where the cosmological constant would naturally come from. Yeah. It's very difficult to explain the value it has. And so it's led people to start taking seriously the possibility that maybe on very large scales, the larger scales we can observe, the universe is actually not governed by Einstein's theory of relativity, but by some modification. And it's in, it's in, in that sense that people started looking at modified theories of gravity. They're, they're saying uh, on solar system scales, you know, within the planets that are surrounding us, we know Einstein's theory works very well. On even bigger scales, galaxy scales, it still works very well. But maybe if you go to you know, much bigger than galactic scales, to the observable universe, what we're beginning to see in this accelerating expansion is actually a manifestation of a change in gravity and that you need some modification from Einstein. And would that be something that would replace the idea of dark energy driving expansion? Exactly, yeah. It would be, the idea would then be, you'd say... Um, okay, I can now forget about the, this cosmological constant. I'll set it to zero. Now, that's a whole can of worms in itself, mm. understanding why it would be zero. But let me set it to zero. All I've got in the universe is the matter that I, I know and love. Yeah. And ideally, maybe, I'll even get rid of the dark matter. <laughs> maybe I can modify my gravity theory so not only do I get the expansion of the un- acceleration of the universe, but I also modi- modify it so I don't need the dark matter. These models that we're looking at don't go quite as far as that. They don't throw out all the dark matter. There are a class of models that do, which I can describe to you, but the the ones that uh, I was describing today in the talk primarily aim to replace the cosmological constant, or as you say, the dark energy, Mm. the stuff that's driving the expansion, the the acceleration of the universe. One thing I sometimes wonder about dark energy is, if it is a a source of energy and if the universe is ever expanding, is that violating the principle of conservation of energy? Is it like creating energy all over the place? No, because um, what you're conserving is the energy momentum tensor, which includes gravity in it. Dark energy is a very poor term for it, in fact, Mm. um, because it's not only, it's not just got an energy component, it's got a a pressure component as well and they combine in a way that satisfies what's known as energy momentum conservation. The pressure bit gives you the momentum. Remember at school we're taught energy's conserved and momentum's conserved. Yeah. In actual fact when you make it relativistic it's energy momentum which is conserved. Right. It's the combination and this satisfies that. Right. So those theories that you were talking about that don't completely throw out dark matter and dark energy, yeah. are they things that come out of sort of taking general relativity as a starting point or do they come from a completely different direction? That's a really good question. I mean, what what we... Some come from a a much more general approach. So there's a, a class of theories called scalar tensor theories. These are theories which have curvatures due to gravity but also have scalar fields which are like matter fields present and they combine, they can combine in various ways. And you find limits of these theories, some of which will give you general relativity and others won't. And what we do know is that general relativity is a, a really good theory, yeah. right? It really fits the data very well. And so if your theory is so completely different from general relativity that it can't reproduce 
any of the successes in general relativity, then it, you know it, you're out. Mm -hmm. So in actual fact, even though you have the possibility of being deviating wildly from it, we know we're quite tightly constrained so that today, when we look on sort of smaller scales, we know we have to look a bit like general relativity because it fits the data so well. It's a data-driven subject, you know, that will yeah. be the ultimate test. That was actually the sort of the last thing I was actually going to ask you about, is how uh, are people now going about testing these theories and trying to rule things in or out. Yeah, it's very early days um, for this. And in fact, uh, some of the other talks at this uh, meeting today were actually about the development of a formalism to try and test these these models. Because as I said, the, the, the deviations can only be quite small. Mm -hmm. And so if you've got small deviations away from general relativity, they're generally quite difficult to determine, especially given all the uncertainties in astronomy and, and cosmology. You're now adding in this extra one. But there is a formalism being developed uh, uh, it's uh, called the PPF formalism, post-parameterized Friedmanian formalism. It's the equivalent of what already exists when you want to test general relativity in the solar system. There is already a really well-established formalism which is used by anybody working on pulsars, working on um, orbits around planets called the PPN formalism, post-parameterized Newtonian formalism. Okay. And, and this is the generalization of it, but it's, right. people are still trying to work out how to best do it. Okay, and within those um, tight constraints that you mm. said, presumably then it's still possible though to come up with theories that may lie within those constraints that reduce or eliminate the need for dark energy oh, and, and dark matter. Absolutely, these, these theories will replace the need for the dark energy, this cosmological constant, through some curvature terms. It'll be that that does it. These, the modified gravity is in that you have extra bits of if you like gravity, <laughs> you, yeah. you have extra curvatures that you include in your underlying theory. And, and it's their effect that um, you know, affects the space-time so that it leads to the, you know, the apparent acceleration of the universe today. It's, and indeed, that gets rid of the matter bit, the need for the cosmological constant of the dark energy. Okay, and last of all, do you think yeah. those questions about dark matter and dark energy will be solved, say, within... Um, a decade or a generation, or are they going to confound us for some time? Oh, what a, another good question. Um, I think the dark matter might be. I, I, I think the the natural mass scales that you expect the dark matter candidates to have are currently are almost being probed now. There, a number are already being ruled out. You know, just for those of your listeners who readily, you know, listen, watch the podcast, uh, the the online BBC, for example, mm -hmm. you, you'll see how the Large Hadron Collider is constraining supersymmetry. Supersymmetry provides you with a class of particle physics dark matter candidates. So some of them are already being tightly squeezed. And, and a lot of observations are bounding these dark matter candidates. I think within the next 10 years, yes, we will know whether or not we've got dark matter particles there or not. And if we haven't, we need something else. We need to explain the rotation curves of, of the galaxies. We need to explain the apparent motion of, of clusters of galaxies. And uh, if you're not going to do it through dark matter, you're going to have to use something else and maybe modifying gravity. Dark energy is not so obvious to me that we'll be able to pin it down. It, everything's looking consistent with this cosmological constant. It, right. it, it doesn't look like we need to modify gravity. But then you've got to explain why I want you to explain you will <laughs> to explain to me why the cosmological constant has the value it has. Why has the value? Because we have no physical motivation. It's very difficult yeah, to, to explain it. People, the, the natural scale it should have from the world of particle physics is much higher. 
mm-hmm. way higher, so much higher that the universe would never form structures, in fact. Right. So it clearly hasn't got that value. Mm-hmm. And so you've, we've suppressed it somehow. We've, we've either hidden it or we've uh, cancelled it out by you know, other contributions coming from somewhere. And when you work out the degree of cancellation you require, it's, mm-hmm. it's incredible. So it's hard to believe they, that they're really this, from the same thing or that you, maybe the particle they call like the vacuum energy mm. just isn't the same thing at all. I yeah, think. so, so you, um, I'm, I'm beginning to wonder whether what's actually happening is that all of those contributions to the vacuum energy really are there. They're there, and, but somehow gravity is missing them. So right. somehow gravity isn't feeling them, it, it's, it's hidden from them. And there are ways of doing it, whether or not they're very natural. Needs to be seen, and, and but a number of number of us are beginning to work on that. It seems extraordinary because I always thought gravitate gravity was the inescapable force. It is, it is the inescapable force. But if you put something in between gravity and the cosmological constant, and that's mm. a scalar field, in fact, right. that's effectively how it works. What what goes on is the gravity interacts with the scalar field the scalar field evolves in such a way as to keep the cosmological constant at bay so it is linking indirectly through this extra field and and it's that evolution of the of the field which kind of absorbs the the gravity bit and leaves the cosmological constant as it is and and gravity sort of doesn't doesn't realize it's there right (laughs) it's a cloak yeah That's very interesting. (laughs) And when you think about these things, do you sort of, I don't know, maybe there's a synthesis, but do you come at it from like an angle of particle physics and and quantum fields or from the angle that Einstein originally took of the smooth geometry of relativity? Or is it something that's... It's a particle thing for me. That's why I keep banging on about how unnatural it is because it's, um, at one level as as an astronomer, it's not an issue, right? It's a number. It's one number. Yeah. And it's got a value, so it's another parameter you know, that goes alongside the expansion rate of the universe, Hubble's parameter. We don't really try to predict Hubble's parameter very much. You know, it's, it's an observed thing, and it, we, help to, we use it to help us um, determine ages and stuff. But with this, it's, it's different, because we know that there, there are contributions that will act like this cosmological constant. We know they come from particle physics. Hmm. So you can't, I think, simply dismiss it as saying, it is a number... You underlying all of that, you've got to explain why why that number is there. So, so I think that's where I do come from it, rather than from, as you say, the the, the the relativity standpoint of it just being an additional term in Einstein's equations. Right. Excellent. Oh, that's very very interesting indeed. Thank you very much that's for a pleasure, that. Pleasure, Mark. Nice to meet you. Thanks for that, Mark. Next up, we have Leo talking to Dr. Dave Jones about studying post-common envelope binary stars at the ESO in Chile and being a support astronomer at the VLT. This is Leo Huckvale. I'm here at NAM 2012 with Dave Jones, who is an ex-Jodcaster. Um, I am. So you've got quite an interesting job, I think. Uh, perhaps you could tell us perhaps what you do on a day-to-day basis. I now work for the European Southern Observatory in Chile, so a completely different kind of observatory to Jodl Bank, because it's, it's looking in the optical the kind of light you see with your eyes rather than the radio like Jodrell. So my job kind of has two completely distinct aspects to it. So the more interesting one that most people would think was more interesting is uh, around about a third of my time I work for the very large telescope in Chile. So it's actually eight telescopes. So very large telescope is not a great name. 
there are in fact four telescopes, each with an eight-meter mirror, which makes it one of the world's largest, each one of them one of the world's largest, and then four smaller telescopes, which we can combine to make a bigger telescope as part of an interferometer. And so my job entails being there around about a third of the year, performing observations for astronomers that can't come to Chile because it's, it's much cheaper to pay me to be there than it is to fly everyone there, and uh, making sure that they get the best possible data and making sure that the telescopes work, making sure that everything runs very smoothly and that they get the best possible science. And then the other aspect of my work that's maybe less interesting to most people but more interesting to me is uh, I get to do my own research. So when I'm not at the telescope, I, I live in the capital city of Chile, the Santiago, and I have an office there where I can do my own research. So the data that I've taken at telescopes like the VLT or at other telescopes, I analyze them and, and discover new things. So could you tell us maybe a bit more about the research you do? Sure. Well, I'm interested in quite a lot of things, but the, the thing I'm most, most interested in right now are things called post-common envelope binaries. So these are stars, binary stars, so that's two stars in orbit around each other, which have um, at some point in their lives undergone what we call a common envelope, which is quite difficult to explain, so I need to go back earlier on into the life of a, of a star to try and explain what it is. So if we think the sun is kind of on its own, but quite a lot of stars form in pairs, around about 50%, but we don't know exactly how many. Then very rarely of exactly the same mass. Sometimes they can be much heavier than one can be much heavier than the other, but normally one is quite heavier, quite a bit heavier than the other. And that means that it evolves faster. So most stars, like the sun has been, the sun's about five billion years old, and it's been kind of the same for all of those five billion years. And for the next five billion years, it'll still be pretty much exactly the same. But then right at the end, in a period of only a few million years, compared to the 10 billion that it lives on the main sequence as a normal star, it changes dramatically. And the main thing that happens is the star swells up to about 500 times its size. So that means that if you have two stars that are quite close together, when they're normal stars, when they're on the main sequence, they're close to each other but not so close. But then when one star evolves and becomes a red giant and swells up, it can engulf the other star. And then the processes that go on within the common envelope, the cloud of gas that's now engulfing the center of the red giant and the, its binary partner, and how that material gets thrown away and what the star looks like when it comes out of the other end is, uh, is very interesting. So these stars, when they reach the end of their lives, they're sort of blowing big cosmic bubbles. Absolutely. So this is the main reason I ended up interested in this kind of thing, is because uh, I initially worked on these objects called planetary nebulae, which are the things that Hubble takes millions of photographs of and that end up in all of the coffee table astronomy books, the most beautiful images in astronomy, which are the gas that's thrown away from a star, from a normal star, when it dies. Very heavy stars, very massive stars, they explode as supernovae. But the sort of normal stars like the Sun, they form these planetary nebulae. And one of the big burning questions in that field is how can you take a round star 
and make a nebula that isn't round because you see all of these images and they look like hourglasses or they have big streams of knots and jets flying away from the central star and we don't understand what forms these but one of the best explanations we have is that the star, on it, the star in the center, the star that's dying, is not on its own. And if the star is close enough to another star that it will form this common envelope, that it will swallow up its partner, then that's the best way to form these really elongated, the most aspherical shapes. So what sort of evidence do we have towards these, a sort of link between the shape of these things and the binary stars at their center? So this, the idea that this has been that binaries have played a key role in the shaping of planetary nebulae, that binaries form aspherical shapes. It's been around for the best part of 50 years, but the actual observational evidence has been pretty slow going because um, these binaries are pretty difficult to find. And I mean, some of them may even, may even merge. So when the, the star engulfs its partner, it may engulf it so badly that uh, the core of both stars merges and it basically becomes like one big star. Whereas what we're looking at really is when it swallows it up but not completely. So basically it just helps to strip away the outside of the star. So for the last 50 years it's been very slow going and people have been slowly finding one binary here, one binary there, mainly by looking for variations in the brightness of the star. So in a very similar way to how people detect exoplanets. If one star goes in front of the other, it blocks out the light of the other star and it gets a little bit dimmer because these stars are so close to each other and so far away that we can't resolve them into two separate stars. They just look like one star to us. So we have to rely on these kind of indirect techniques and one of the best is if uh, you have an eclipse. If one star goes in front of the other, it gets momentarily darker and then when the star pops out of the other side it goes back to being the normal brightness again. So one of the things that I do is I spend a lot of time looking at the stars in the middle of these planetary nebulae to check whether the brightness changes with time and if it changes periodically so if it's repeatable, if it goes if every day at the same time it changes from being bright to dark and then back to bright again then I know that the binary is orbiting around itself once every day. So you mentioned these common envelopes that exist around these uh, binary stars. Can you sort of perhaps go into a bit more detail about how those are generated, how they, where they come from in the first place? Yeah, so it's kind of a, a, a weird idea because what you have to get is that stars aren't the same all the way through from the core to the end. They're kind of like an onion, especially when they're getting towards the end of their life where the center of the star is now more made of, of heavier materials because it's initially when the star is born it's mainly hydrogen and then in the core it turns hydrogen to helium and then helium to other heavier elements so then you end up right at the end with this uh, fairly inert ball in the middle made up of heavier elements and then the fusion kind of goes on in layers outside and that's part of what drives it to swell up to 500 times its normal size. So they have this kind of onion-like structure. And so what happens is, as it begins to swell up, the presence of the, the other star begins to change its shape. So normally stars are round, but when you get them very close together, 
they become more like of a, a teardrop shape in a very similar way to the moon and the earth as the moon goes around the earth it kind of distorts the earth so this same thing this tidal force happens in stars so the star that's now swelling up which we call the primary star begins to get a sort of teardrop shape where the point of the teardrop is going towards the other star and then as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger there becomes a point where the parts on the outside of this star are no longer gravitationally connected to the core of itself so the the force of gravity from one star on the other become kind of balanced so this material is almost free it could could escape from the star but it can't escape from the entire system because the collective gravity of the two stars is still too strong so it ends up forming a sort of cloud around both stars so that's what we call the common envelope it's basically the the very outer layers of the onion of uh, the star that's beginning to swell up that's beginning to die that get stripped away and end up swallowing up both stars and then the weird stuff that goes on inside that we don't really understand but what we know is that it basically acts as though the two stars carry on going around each other inside this cloud but they experience quite a lot of friction because it's like they're now orbiting in treacle and so that slows them down and it brings them closer together so before this period they could uh, have orbital periods of hundreds of years they could be very wide but by the end of it they come out and they're orbiting each other in periods of days you know these these are two big stars bigger than the earth which go around each other once every day whereas the earth goes around the sun once every 365 days so they're pretty extreme so just as they're spinning around each other really fast inside this this common envelope just like if you go around the roundabout faster and faster you kind of get thrown to the outside of your car and your car might even begin to tip up on two wheels so the same thing happens here but that energy that's trying to make things go out is transferred into the the common envelope into the treacle that they're spinning around in so that means that this ball of gas begins to be thrown out but not omnidirectionally it doesn't go in every direction it gets focused into the plane in which they're spinning because it's you know if you go around a roundabout you don't fly upwards you fly outwards you fly away from the center of the roundabout so all of this um, material ends up focused in the in the plane and it turns into sort of like a ring that surrounds the two stars and then if we form these beautiful planetary nebulae what we think is this ring of material then prevents the new nebula from expanding into a nice sphere it kind of sits around the waist like a belt and turns it into this this hourglass like shape so then this torus of material this ring forms the the waist of the hourglass so essentially we wouldn't get these really pretty sort of butterfly and hourglass shapes if we didn't have this binary at the very start of the whole thing absolutely i have a a colleague of mine that says that these beautiful bubbles uh, betray a difficult cosmic marriage between these two binary stars and I think that's a beautiful way of looking at it (laughs) well I think that's a nice image to end on so uh, Dave thank you very much thank you very much thanks for that Leo now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things we can't fit in anywhere else the odds and ends so what have you got for us this month Liz right so I'm going to talk about the transits of Venus 
So I hope all of you made it and watched it. Um, I was here in Manchester and of course it was cloudy, so we couldn't see anything. This was from the 5th to the 6th of June. Um, so this transit of Venus is happens in pairs of eight years apart. And then these pairs are, are themselves separated by more than a century. So the previous one was 8th of June, 2004. And the next one will be in 105 years. So I don't think any of us will make it. No. Did you get a good view of it where you were, Libby? I got a fantastic view of, of it. Of course you did. <laughs> I, yeah, my trip was very, very happy to coincide with two two fantastic uh, events. Um, so we had some solar telescopes out um, looking at... We, I was quite lucky to be in a place where you could see the full transit. So, in fact, some of us were trying to calculate the actual distance of Venus using... Um, some of the old methods that Captain Cook tried to do. Um, oh, really? So when the, when Venus entered the sun and when it leaves the sun. But it was a little bit cloudy, so it wasn't perfect observing, but on the whole we could see Venus and you could see some of the sunspots as well. Um, and yes, it was a very, very fantastic once-in-a-lifetime event because I tried to see it um, in the previous time and I missed it because it was cloudy in Manchester. So I was quite happy to be somewhere else where it was less cloudy. Manchester is not conducive to optical astronomy <laughs> no it's not the best place to be no so i wish all the people um good observing and a good fantastic all the people who did actually get to see it and commiserations to the people who didn't yeah exactly. there's been a lot of activity on the forum regarding the venus transit so it's probably a good time to thank andrew h earth unit susan k junior edge rapid eye and retired jodcaster jen gupta for sharing your Venus transit experiences from around the world. Brilliant. So so this transit of Venus was actually a um, huge event and all the telescopes were observing it. And it's very important because this is helping us to um, use astronomy and use this transit um, to, to compare to exoplanets. So one of the things that they use during this transit is measuring the dip of the brightness of the sun and um, causing by by Venus co passing a, um, in front of the Sun. So this is going to be used to compare um, transit of other exoplanets. So these also provide practice in detecting planet signals around spotty or variable stars because at this moment the, the Sun is quite um, active. So while the transit was on, there, there was a lot of sunspots. And if this happened in another star, so you can compare and use these measurements of the star that has the spots and is also having a, a transit of its planet around it. So you can differentiate between a spot and a planet. So this is going to help Kepler exactly with its, with its uh, mission to try and see transiting planets. Yeah. yeah. And I guess this technology wasn't around in the last transit eight years ago. Exactly. So this is why everything is, is time well-timed to, to observe this and, and compare it with with what Kepler is doing at the moment. Um, another thing that it was used as well is to have better measurements of the diameter of Venus, because again, we have better telescopes at the moment, so you can uh, have more accurate measurements. Um, and this is also to compare to extra, extra exoplanet um, sizes. Um, another thing was observing the atmosphere of Venus with some Earth-based telescopes. Um, and these again to compare to another atmospheres of other exoplanets. Um, and also another very interesting thing that I found was that they used the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, they used the moon as a mirror 
and observe the reflected light from Venus to, and this is to determine the makeup of its atmosphere. But this is a technique that we can use for exoplanets as well to use the reflected light. So do you know if this has been done before to use a moon or is this a very new technique that's a first one-off? I think this is one of the first times that it has been used because I've heard that they, they wanted to use this technique, but I don't think it has, it has been successful before. So this is the first so test probably, of it yeah. and it was successful. Yeah, it's amazing. That's brilliant to actually use a mirror as a reflector to see the transit exactly. of something in the system. Yeah. I mean, who would have thought to do that? I mean, that very clever guys who thought that Yeah, definitely, up. definitely, yeah. Pretty amazing. So, yeah, next one is in 105 years. <laughs> so what were you two doing to observe it while you're in cloudy Manchester? Oh, well, I watch it online. Yeah, um, making use of the internet. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Glad, gladly we had internet. So I was, yeah, just watching it on, on my bed, uh, warm and cosy. <laughs> but um, Would rather have been in Japan, to be honest. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. I wanted to watch it like live, but never mind. It was amazing to see that while the like Venus was in transit, you can see the sunspots. And in, in perspective, they, they're massive. So it just gives you a perspective of how huge is the sun because the venus is a very equivalent size to the earth right so in comparison the sunspots are even bigger than than the size of venus yeah you don't really think of that when you even with the solar telescope when you're looking at the sun you yeah because compared to the sun size they look tiny right but but they're huge i mean they're it's amazing yeah i guess even us get uh you don't even think about how big the sun is in yeah yeah it's actual size yeah Exactly. To actually put it into a concept of something that you're, you you can relate to quite easily, and I guess seeing something like that. Well, you're watching it in different filters as well, with a broadcast showing it in the, different wavelengths. Well, I was watching the one in uh, NASA one, and they had only like the optical. But I, I like days later, I watched the one in radio, which was also really cool. And then the SOHO um, telescope, the satellite, also had different filters as well, yeah. UV and radio. And yeah, but it's, it's very cool just to see it's that. It's amazing. Yes. So what did you want to talk about this week, Libby? Uh, the US is giving two of its old spy satellites to NASA. Now, these two telescopes, which the US is decommissioning from its uh, reconnaissance uh, mission, uh, has the same mirror, primary mirror size as the Hubble Space Telescope. So both these satellites have a mirror size of 2.4 metres. Wow. Goodness me. So the, these are very, very powerful satellites. And not only do they have a 2.4 meter collecting area. They also have a secondary mirror which enhances the resolution and the sharpness of the image. So these can get very, very precise images of whatever object it is looking at. And the Hubble has done some fantastic science since its launch in 1990. And it's really good to actually have two telescopes possibly to be ready to take over some, some of its role. For some reason, I don't quite know why, the officials did not elaborate on the original design and missions for these original telescopes, but I we think there must be to be uh, some redesign and recommissioning to make them su- suitable for astronomical purposes and looking at a distant thing. So it may be some time before these object uh, these satellites get fully operational. But if they do and when they do, it'll be very cool to actually see the images they produce because they should be comparable to Hubble. And who knows, you may be able to use them in tandem. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, them. like an interferometry or something. Yeah. That'd be amazing, actually. It'd be really cool. So to have two telescopes available like that is is going to be brilliant. Do we know when they'll be available or when they'll start being used? Possibly they could be launched into orbit around 2020. 
so eight years or so from now. Um, but that also de- depends on, we don't really know any of the, the specs of these satellites, we just know they've been given over. So it may require a complete redesign or they may be able to go sooner or later. This will definitely help matters and keep costs down to do with science as well. So Brilliant. yay for the US government giving up its own toys. Interesting stuff. Thanks for that, Libby. My story is about tree rings, which doesn't sound very astronomical at all. Um, but what I learned when I was researching this story is that tree rings contain a rare isotope of carbon, carbon-14, which is the particular isotope of carbon that's produced when cosmic rays react with nitrogen and oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere, um, which goes on all the time. Um, but a Japanese scientist called Fusa Miyake recently um, found a massive spike in these carbon-14 measurements in the tree rings of um, trees in Japan, North America and Europe. And this spike corresponds to a massive influx of cosmic rays around about 1,200 years ago. But they're not really sure what's caused it, um, because the only known events that produce such spikes are supernovas and solar flares. But if it was a supernova, then they reckon there should be some remnants of it in the sky today. And if it was a solar flare, it would have had to have been the most powerful one ever discovered. And of course, if you had anything so dramatic as that, a big dramatic astronomical event like that, you'd think it would be mentioned in historical records and there isn't any really any evidence of that yet either so it's a bit of a mystery so all we know is there's been this massive influx of uh, cosmic rays on impinging the earth and then curse the whole earth if it's been seen in japan north america and europe yeah so it's not just one side of it and then but nothing no observations no records no anything in the sky that will hint at what the origins of these cosmic rays there's definitely no remnant of a supernova so the best candidate is a solar flare but like i said it has to be a really powerful one or there's some um some other theories there's a a a researcher in california that suggested that it might be um several less energetic flares over the space of a couple of years or um some people have said that it um that a coronal mass ejection under particular circumstances might um, produce it but um other than that, then they're a bit unsure. Or well, it could be some kind of new phenomena that we're could, just, some yeah. really rare phenomena that we're just unaware of. Yeah, so yeah. So this be. is the first hint of what's causing it. This is really awesome. It is. I really like the way they fused biology and cosmology. It's that not a, impressive. It's not yeah. a combination you often see together. Yeah, I wouldn't think to go looking at tree rings to observe no, so the past. Was, so I just thought it was really interesting, so really fascinating. Yeah, that's very cool. And now, from one strange phenomenon to another, here is Dr Tim O'Brien answering your astronomical questions. The first question this month is from Geoffrey Moore, and he asks, how do astronomical observations help constrain models of early inflation in current cosmological models, and what further observations might we look for with new telescopes? So, okay, this is a fairly complex uh, question, but let's just uh, remind ourselves what inflation is. This is just uh, a development that was added to uh, standard Big Bang models uh, some time ago now, um, which suggests that very early on in the universe, there's a very rapid period of expansion. So soon after the Big Bang, very soon after the Big Bang, um, the universe sort of inflates, so distances, scales in the universe expand exponentially, extremely rapidly. Um, and effectively that solved several problems in the standard Big Bang model. Um, for example, why was the universe at such a uh, 
basically the same temperature. So when we looked at the fading glow of the Big Bang, the cosmic microwave background, uh, we found it to be almost exactly the same temperature everywhere we look. Um, and that wouldn't have been possible since, you know, one side of the sky would have been so far removed from the other side of the sky at the time the, the, the uh, cosmic microwave background was produced, um, that it wouldn't have known to be at the same temperature um, so precisely. So inflation basically solves that problem by, by saying that, that uh, at the time, uh, very early on, um, those two points, when we look now out to out to very large distances, looking back in time to the time the, the microwave background was created, points on opposite sides of the sky, um, as we see it now, would have actually been close enough very early on, very soon after the Big Bang, to come into this sort of approximate equilibrium to get the same temperature. It also solves a problem to do with why the universe is um, basically almost exactly flat, as far as we can see. And, and by flat, we mean sort of the geometry of, of a flat surface, if you like, which would, in the terms of in terms of a sort of you know a, a universe, a real universe, if you look around us, the the best way of thinking about that is to think about two laser beams that are set off. Um, pointed, pointed sort of so that they're parallel initially, uh, in a flat universe, they stay parallel. Um, whereas if the universe is curved, um, they would either diverge or they would, or they would converge as they traveled through the universe. So, so inflation, you know, solve various of these problems, but it would be nice to try and test it. And I suppose, um, you know, you could argue that, that some of these observations, like the fact that the universe is being, you know, is a, is almost exactly flat, is, a, a, you know, a good test of inflation. So that already exists. Um, another thing you could, you can look at is when we, when we look at the, mic, the cosmic microwave background across the whole of the sky, um, we can measure its temperature. Uh, and although we see that it's almost exactly the same temperature everywhere, there are very small fluctuations in the temperature at the, at the level of sort of one part in 10 to the 5. Um, so, you know, one part in 100 would be 1% fluctuations. So it's a thousandth of 1% or less, that, that sort of level of variation in temperature. Um, and that, um, those sorts of uh, fluctuations, you can measure the scales, the sort of sizes on the sky, their angular scale, and if you measured, you know, in degrees, for example. And we see this very clear spectrum of fluctuations where you see peaks in the, um, you know, you see a large number of fluctuations around about a degree or so across. Um, but then you see um, a large number of them rather sort of if you like clumping at rather smaller angular scales and so on. And you see these sorts of peaks in the spectrum. And those peaks are what we call the acoustic oscillations. So they're basically due to sound waves uh, rippling through the universe, uh, much like the sort of harmonics you get from a guitar string or striking a striking a bell, um, where you get these sort of peaks at different frequencies. We see these same sorts of peaks in the in the temperature fluctuations and therefore the, the density of the universe. Now, it turns out that uh, you can study the details of those and show that, in fact, they can't have been caused by fluctuations arising um, continuously during the, the history of the universe, but they appear to only be explained by fluctuations which were imposed very close to the beginning, very close to t equals zero, which again is something that inflation predicts. So that's something you can, again, you can you can more or less tell now from the microwave background spectrum we have the observations we already have 
Now, something like Planck, the Planck spacecraft, will, of course, measure that spectrum far more precisely and allow us to put further limits on those models. Um, but one of the things that um, Planck may be able to do, and it's really, a, it's really a may be able to do this, is to measure the polarisation um, of the cosmic microwave background. Um, so polarisation in the same, you know, in a similar sense to, uh, you know, you think about light being polarised and wearing Polaroid sunglasses. Um, the radio waves of the cosmic microwave background are polarised because of the the way in which they've interacted with scattered off electrons in the in the early universe. And you can predict models can predict what sort of type of polarisation you should expect. And uh, there's lots of work that that has been done and will be done by instruments like Planck in terms of interpreting the polarisation. But for inflation, one of the uh, key signatures to look for would be something called B-mode polarisation, which is a very special class of polarisation. Um, and that could really test whether, uh, basically caused by gravitational waves resulting from inflation, that could be a real key test of inflation. Now, whether Planck will be able to detect it or not, we will see when the Planck results start to be published from January next year. Um, but it is challenging um, because only a very tiny fraction of the cosmic microwave background is polarised um, and therefore in this way and therefore you'd have to have very precise observations to be able to detect it above the sort of uh, the noise level if you like in the observations. So Planck may do but there will certainly be other instruments we hope that will be built later which which will if Planck doesn't manage to measure this hopefully will be able to measure it. Now, the next question is from Pete, who says, I've understood until recently that the age of the universe was almost exactly 13.7 billion years. But various podcasts and other sources have, in the last few months, started to use a figure of 14 billion years. Do you know of any reason for this change? I can't believe that this is just a matter of rounding all of a sudden. Thanks for your time. Jod on. Well, actually... You might be surprised, but it surely is just a matter of people rounding it all of a sudden um, because there's been no, you know, change in any measurements that suddenly says, we're, you know, we've gone from 13.7 billion years to, to 14 billion years. I think people are just uh, just rounding it up to the nearest nearest round number of 14. Um, and of course, if you look up the uh, uh, the W map, uh, the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, uh, the W map website, you'll find the very precise estimates of the age of the universe, even more precise than 13.7 billion years old. So, uh, yeah, you take your pick, but uh, almost 14 billion years is, is good enough for me. Uh, now, Anne James wrote in um, to say, Hi, all at JB. We just had a lovely Jubilee weekend, caravanning at Knockin in Shropshire. Sounds nice. Uh, we were fascinated by the radio telescope there that I understand is part of your Merlin project and we'd be interested to know what it was tracking. Thanks a million, Anne. So yes, we do have a radio telescope at, um, at Knocking. Um, it's part of the e-Merlin network, as, you, as, as we call it now. Um, and there's actually up to seven radio telescopes in, in this network. Um, we've got the Lovell Telescope at Jodrell Bank. Um, we've also got the Mark II Telescope at Jodrell Bank. But then the remote ones are at Pickmere, which is near Nutsford. Um, there's another one at Darn Hall, out towards sort of Crewe Way. Um, there's the one at Knocking um, that you mentioned in Shropshire. There's also one at Defford, which is near the Malvern Hills. And there's also one down at Cambridge. 
So these are basically the ones that we connect together to make a, uh, effectively a synthesized telescope with a diameter of over 200 kilometers. And that gives us a, a much sharper view than a single radio telescope alone would give us. Um, so now, yeah, eMerlin is just uh, the project where we've taken these telescopes that have been around for a while now. Um, we've completely revamped the whole system, really. The only, the only bit of the the, the array that remains is the is the, sort of the most obvious bit really which is the dish the telescope itself um, but the receivers that set the focus have been changed and the way in which that that signal is then transported back to George Bank has been changed instead of being on um, microwave radio links it now comes back on optical fibers um, and then the supercomputer that combines the signal at Jodrell Bank, the correlator, has also been changed as well. So as I say, the only thing that remains is the sort of metal of the of the dish, the telescopes themselves. Um, so you can uh, have a look at what Emerlin is doing on our website. Um, there's, a, there's a web address, which is www.jb.man.ac.uk, and then forward slash live. And that will show you what all our telescopes are up to, where they're pointing, whether they're operating, whether they're undergoing maintenance or or whatever. And right this minute, what eMerlin is doing, um, the, the reason it's not an easy question to answer is because it does change from day to day, often um, at various points during the day. Um, but uh, we're basically running through doing observations for uh, astronomers all over the world as part of what's called cycle zero, which is effectively the very first set of observations we're doing after the new upgrade to optical fibers. Um, and so people have applied for those observations from all over the world and we're working our way, way through them, through them now. Okay. The final question this month is from, came via Twitter actually, and it's from at Oggie Space, so G-G-Y-S-P-A-C-E. And he says, in less than 140 characters, Sagan states, brackets, cosmos, close brackets, total energy received by radio telescopes is less than energy of snowflake hitting ground. True? Question mark. So, okay, so this gives us a chance to do some calculations, I suppose. Um, it is the sort of thing you hear, and probably was originally, maybe originally was said by Cal, Cal Sagan in the cosmos TV programs. Um, I guess the main point um, that underlies this is the amount of energy arriving at the Earth from these cosmic radio sources is very small. Um, so I suppose we could try and do a calculation of that. So I sort of thought I'll I'll see what the answer comes out as here. Well, I picked a bright radio source. So this I picked Cygnus A, which is one of the brightest radio sources in the sky. It's actually a, a, a radio a distant radio galaxy with radio jets and sort of two lobes where these jets shoot out from the region around a supermassive black hole and actually it was shown to be a, a sort of double source where these two jets shoot out by uh, a couple of astronomers at Jodrell Bank back in the early 1950s uh Jenison and Das Gupta so what you need to do is you have to look at the the brightness obviously of this um of these sources and you can look at um how much energy is basically arriving per second um, from these things. And you have to think about how, how far away they are. So what's so actually Cygnus A is almost 800 million light years away. So it's a long, long way away. Um, but it produces in the whole of the radio spectrum, it produces about 10 to the 38 watts. So 10 to the power 38 joules per second. So one followed by 38 zeros. 
So there's a huge amount of energy, but then of course it's so far away that that gets spread over a very large area as it sort of spreads out through space. Um, so if you worked that out and you worked out how much, you know, energy was arriving per square meter per second at the Earth, you get, um, about 10 to the minus 13 joules per square meter per second. So 10 to the minus 13 watts per square meter, which is basically what you get from a 50 watt light bulb if you placed it 6,000 kilometers away. So these things are not, not bright. Now, the thing about that number, in fact, is that that's an overestimate really of what a radio telescope would pick up because that was the sort of total energy spread across a huge range of the, uh, of the spectrum. So when we use a radio telescope, we tend to have a receiver that, that, that is tuned to a very small part of that spectrum, typically. So we're interested, in fact, in what the sort of brightness is at a specific bit of the spectrum. And for uh, Cygnus A, its brightness is what we call 2000 Jansky at a frequency of about one gigahertz in the radio spectrum. So a Jansky, obviously named after the Carl Jansky, who was the first person to pick up radio waves coming from outer space, a Jansky is 10 to the power minus 26 watts, so joules per second, per square meter. So arriving at the Earth on a, on a, on an area of, a, of, of size one square meter, um, per hertz, so per sort of frequency unit in the spectrum. So if you then, um, imagine that you've got a receiver on your telescope, that receiver will pick up uh, will be tuned into a certain bandwidth, a certain section of the spectrum. And a typical sort of old-style um, radio telescope receiver might have had a bandwidth of something like 10 megahertz, so 10 million hertz. So you'd have to multiply up that number of 2,000 Jansky by that bandwidth of 10 megahertz. And what that gives you is 10 to the power minus 16 watts per square meter. So... Um, that's about a thousand times less than the whole of the spectrum. Um, so a very small amount of energy arriving per, per second, um, per sort of square meter of your detector. These days, um, and something that E. Merlin's done is, is what we've done by using optical fibers is we've been able to use much higher bandwidths in our receivers. So our bandwidths, instead of being say 10, 15 megahertz, are now measured in the sort of gigahertz range so we can get far more energy in we can see much fainter things but let's stick with the sort of old style for the purposes of this question um so what you need to do now is you need to say okay let's pick the Lovell telescope the Lovell telescope is 76 meters in diameter that means it's got an area of about four and a half thousand square meters so you take that total area four and a half thousand square meters and you'd multiply that up by the amount of energy you're getting per second per square meter that we just found from the brightness of Cygnus A. So it turns out um, that the Lovell telescope, if you pointed at Cygnus A, um, would receive about just, just about four times ten to the minus thirteen joules per second from Cygnus A. So about uh, ten to the minus five point zero 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 one joules per year from Cygnus A. So this is not a lot of energy. Remember, a 50-watt light bulb produces 50 joules per second. So this is 10 to the minus 5 joules per, per year. Now, okay, well, we're supposed to be comparing this to the energy of a snowflake hitting the ground. So let's let's do that. Um, uh, I, I now know more about snowflakes than I ever really wanted to know. Um, but the mass of a typical snowflake is a few milligrams, say 5 milligrams. So that's 5 times 10 to the minus 6 kilograms. Um, snowflakes fall at a meter a second or so, maybe a few meters a second. 
work out what the kinetic energy is. That's a half mv squared, where m is mass, v is velocity. You get a kinetic energy for a snowflake of about 2 times 10 to the minus 6 joules. So given all those numbers, that's about 5 times less um, than the energy that the Lovell telescope would collect from Cygnus A in a year. So the kinetic energy of one, the sort of energy of one snowflake hitting the ground is um, uh, about five times less than what you get in a year um, from Cygnus A. So I think um, it's an interesting one. So it, I would I would say that I'm not, it's not clear to me, depends how you work out those numbers, it's not clear to me that it's quite right in terms of the total energy received by radio telescopes is less than the energy of a snowflake um, hitting the ground. There are, there are from my calculations, it's about, um, in a year, it's, you know, it's roughly the same sort of order of magnitude. But of course, you'd have to be pointing continuously at Cygnus A. It depends what bandwidth you assume for your receiver and so on. But I think the bottom line is the amount of energy we get from, from space collected by a radio telescope, even when we point the Lovell telescope, a huge telescope like the Lovell, at one of the brightest radio sources in the sky, Cygnus A, we're only collecting 0.00001 joules per year when a single 50-watt light bulb produces 50 joules in a second. So you can sort of see that the, the amount of energy being received is tiny. Okay, thanks for all those questions. We'll uh, we'll try and answer uh, more questions next month. Thanks for that, Tim. Now on to the feedback. So have you got any emails for us this month, Liz? Yeah, yeah, we got an e Well, we got, I think, a few emails. So one of them is from Geoffrey Moore. Uh, he wanted to give us a belated thanks because he has been listening to Jodka since the start, uh, but never got around to say thanks. Um, so he just wanted to thank us. Oh, that's really nice to see a listener from the start getting yeah. involved. That's, that's but, amazing, yeah. right? And he just wanted to welcome aboard all the new Jodcasters that saying that you're doing a great job. Thank you for that. Oh, yay! <laughs> <laughs> Some good feedback this month. And as usual, thanks for all your tweets, retweets and follow Fridays on Twitter. And if you do want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net On forum at forum.jodcast.net On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash Jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash Jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash Jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. Thanks to Dr Catherine Johnston, Professor Ed Copeland and Dr Dave Jones for the interviews and to Mike Anderson for the Jodbite. The editors were Dan Turton, Adam Avison, Melis Ifran. Tim O'Brien, Mark Pover, and Christina Smith. The producer was Kat Maguire. Until next time, Jod, Jod on! on.